You are now tuned in to the Property Management Show with your host, Alex Osanenko. We bring in the experts of today so you can be the master of tomorrow in all things property management. Whether it's getting more doors, running a profitable fee-based business, or by simply being the best property manager. So, grab a pen and paper because this episode is sure to be a good one. Thank you and enjoy the show. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the next episode. I'm going to move the microphone of the property management show. I have uh, a special topic today covered by very special guests. Um, we're going to talk about top line versus bottom line. Um, a lot of companies, uh, a lot of entrepreneurs get in the business to you know make money, but a lot of us have causes, right? And money is simply an outcome. Yet there's a discipline that um, is sort of accepted among a lot of business owners, and that is you suffocate without profit. Um, my sort of personal take on this, I think you suffocate without healthy top line growth. The profit is achievable, um, but a top line to me is a more meaningful number, even though, even though the profit is some, a lot of times an indicator of how, what the company is worth and what you're taking home. And I have two very fine gentlemen to argue, well, to, to exp explore this idea. Uh, first, I want to introduce uh, Jordan Moella. Jordan, how are you? Doing well. Happy to be here, Alex. Oh, that's fantastic, man. So, Jordan, uh, i just give you a few accolades, those of you who don't know. Uh, he's a, a founder and CEO, co-founder and CEO of Lead Simple, a CRM for property management companies. He's a co-founder of PM Growth Summit, um, a company that puts on an annual conference for the prop, top property management entrepreneurs in the world. Uh, he also is a co-author of the first ever benchmarking case study. We'll talk about that in just a minute. And he's a personal friend. I'm probably forgetting a couple of things. A great husband, uh, uh, you know, has great family. And Jordan, it's, it's, it's really a pleasure to have you, man. Happy to be here, man. Thanks for the, uh, for the intro. Appreciate that. Yep, yep, uh, absolutely. Um, and then I have Danny Craig. Danny is uh, one of the brightest, brightest. All right, stop, stop, stop. Yeah, 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 yeah. It, that, that, that I've known, I mean, someone who is so just open and, and type A kind of personality that digs numbers so well, it's very, very hard to find. Unbelievable skill set, and I believe, I believe you also – um, you know, I forgot, I forgot to mention, Jordan, you're a co-founder of The Profit Coach. That's true. Danny, what is your, what is your position with The Profit Coach? Yeah, so partner with Jordan at The Profit Coach. I got you, a partner with Profit Coach. He's, there the, you chief, are. So he's the chief brains of the operation. Don't be coy, Danny. He's, he's the chief brains of the operation. I, I believe that. No <laughs> idea. <laughs> Um, so so let's, let's dig in. So I, I made some claims out there on the outset. Um, that I, I think I want to take the, the side of the top line and saying top line growth trumps a lot of issues with a company, you know, going from uh, um, a, a, a mobility of an employees and their sort of morale and their ability to progress with the organization. If you don't have top line growth, you don't have that momentum. And if you don't have good team, I think the rest of the company might as well just fall apart. Um, 
So that, that's kind of my argument. Uh, I want you to make a counter argument on the profit side and see if we can sort of just begin to sort of mesh this together. Well, let's start off by just kind of vetting the, the valley phrase of growth solves nearly all problems. Heard it before. And in large part, relatively sympathetic to that notion of thinking, at least in the sense that if you're going to err on the side of being operationally efficient and really offering wonderful operations, but having no clue how to grow and how to run a sales marketing arm of the business, or you could have a fantastic sales marketing organization that does pretty much average service when it comes to property management. I'm going to pick the organization that has that sales and marketing powerhouse every single time. So I don't know how misaligned we are. What really comes down to for me is what we see as we do consulting, as we wade into the numbers, is that there is no point in scaling something that doesn't work. In a business that is hemorrhaging cash, when that is not purely a byproduct of growth, meaning if you look at a company that's either break even or losing money, if we strip out any of the sales marketing expenditures and they're still underperforming, we'd look at that and say there's really no excuse for what's happening here and there's nothing good that can come from scaling an organization like that because it's just going to get harder to course correct over time. That, that's my take. Danny, what do you think? Yeah, I think it comes down to uh, another question, which is what is what does your end state look like? Why are you in the business? If you're in the business to, you know, maximize your distributions, your your cash flow from the business on a month to month basis, then that's one that's kind of one end game, one outcome. If you're there to scale up, get a bunch of doors and sell out, um, then you know the the question there is if you can. Uh, feed the business enough cash to get to the growth that you want before you sell, then that's, that's a different, that's a different path. So I would say, um, depending on what your end game looks like, that's going to determine a little bit of how concerned you are about scaling profitably. Uh, that, that, that's, 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 that's gonna, that's gonna have a big impact at the end of the day. Um, when it comes to, uh, you know, option one, um, growth doesn't solve all issues if you can't at some point optimize, right? So that would be the question. Uh, growth is great, but if at some point you can't optimize and you can't get profitable, then you've got an issue. Those are my two cents. That, that, that's very well put. So the definition, Jordan, that you gave for an organization that's pointless to scale and it doesn't work is I'm going to repeat this for my own sake and the sake of the audience is if you strip out sales and marketing as expenses and you're still losing money on consistent basis, that business needs a lot of help and top line growth is not going to, it's not going to help more or less. Yep. Okay. Um, and, and to that point, the, one of the reasons is, is because the bigger you are, uh, the harder it is to turn the ship. It's a lot easier to turn a canoe than to turn the Titanic. And um, so we tend to think that if you want to, if you, it, it, here's, I, I would make this distinction. Where Where is the inefficiency coming from? Why are we having a lack of profit? Is because we're throwing a bunch of money back into the business in terms of development and we're just trying to scale up through marketing? Or is it because we have internal inefficiencies in the day-to-day delivery of the service. Those are two different things. Um, we would basically say, get, get, get efficient on the day-to-day delivery of the services and scale up from there. There's no, there's, 
I can't see a big reason to allow that to stay inefficient and then try to make it become efficient when you get big. Are you familiar with the concept uh, that uh, our uh, mutual friend CPA used? And I, I hear it uh, here and there um, represented uh, the concept of a black hole when a business reaches that, that state, a black hole where uh, nothing seems to work anymore. And that usually happens in about two or three million range. Um, what about an argument? And I'm sort of at that level where we're, we're just bridging this black hole. And it's been, it's been very, very, very difficult because as the organization scales, I don't care how efficient you had it before. It's just not going to continue uh, delivering the same output with, you know, at, at, at this point where it just, it just, everything breaks, right? It's just no processes, no systems, no, nothing is designed to support this level of this, this, this machine. And it's, and it's right there upon you. How, how does sort of a black hole come into, you know, what, what would your sort of guidance be to manage that period and up to that period and past that period? Because a lot of people listening to the show, let me just define, are definitely looking to grow past that period. I'm, I'm sure of it. Yeah. So I'll let Danny comment on the black hole that you just mentioned. The black hole that I would identify really is one that happens a lot sooner than that. Let's look at a company that's managing between two and 300 doors. And they're at a situation where they're really, the owner is really wanting to transition to acting in a true management capacity. They've heard this kind of ongoing story and to some degree a guilt trip about you should be working on the business instead of in the business. But at that really small scale, the business cannot justify, it cannot support somebody that's clearly working in a management capacity. And as you make that contribution, what we see over and over again is that the management labor dollar, meaning the portion of labor going to support management, is the most difficult labor dollar to see meaningful ROI from. Because oftentimes the owner is not keeping, um, is not reconciling the impact of their efforts. Meaning what could a man, what could a management labor dollar that owner function do to earn its keep? You could grow the business so you could add doors, which basically more or less is adding a, a marketing or a sales function. You could increase revenue, meaning you could drive your revenue per door up, or you could lower costs, or you could lower churn. We could talk about some squishy things like vision, culture, and that stuff is all great. But if those other numbers aren't moving, and you've taken a person's salary that was working in the business to now loading the business with that, with that labor on top, if they're not driving one of those levers, it's very hard to, um, it's very hard to maintain, to, to maintain profit really and sufficient profit margins. So I would say that's the first black hole that happens long before the one that you're talking about and getting that right is what puts you in a position to then deal with that second pain point that you've just identified. Yeah, uh, I would agree. So there's, there's basically two, the, the black holes generally revolve around management labor. And so the first, the first black hole that Jordan's speaking to uh, revolves around the transition from owner doing, the, doing all the business work to entering a true uh, management function. So that's the first black hole that Jordan's talking about. Generally, I would say that that probably happens probably, uh, you know, like Jordan said, you know, 300, three, maybe, maybe two to 300 doors is where that transition begins. The next black hole is when it's probably closer to 
um, you know, I, I think we tend to see it actually a little earlier in property management, maybe a little earlier than 2 million would be my gut sense. Uh, maybe a thousand units. I would say, I would say even earlier, potentially 700, uh, 700 plus units. What we saw is generally speaking, and, and I've heard this from a number of smart owners and people who are advisors in the study that we've seen maximized profits right around four to 600 units, maybe 700 units. Um, maybe if you have a heavy portion of multifamily, it's, it's closer to a thousand units is the top end of, of optimal. So I would say uh, that's probably the sweet spot because that's where you have one owner, one manager, their management salary is covered, it's running smooth. Once you cross that 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 uh, that uh, threshold of 700 to a uh, thousand units, I think that's where we get to a next stage, a next black hole, uh, which is where one manager that the processes as we knew it uh, just didn't aren't sufficient to handle that kind of growth. So that's what I would see is generally um, maybe it happens a little bit earlier. The second black hole happens a little bit earlier in property management. Very interesting. So two, it, surrounds, it surrounds management labor where that one owner now needs to be broken out into uh, CFO, HR, uh, you know, marketing, and, and it's too much for that one owner to do. Are you speaking of the first or the second? I'm speaking of the second. The first is where you go from the, the, the owner is a PM and he's transitioning to a true manager. And the second transition is from the one manager to you know, a multiplicity of management. So a CEO. CEO yeah. with, a, a, uh, with, with other C-level exec, execs. Gotcha. So what's some of the, I, I think right now we have uh, some of our audience sitting on the edge of their seat trying to say, okay, I'm there, I'm black hole one or I'm black hole two, self-identifying or I'm about to be there or there are people who just don't believe this happens. Trust me, guys, it happens. I thought I had everything lined up and the business was tight as it could be and things were going good and and all of a sudden there's just uh you know you you just literally overnight realize that you got to rebuild everything let's just do it again um kind of a thing that's at least how it feels i don't know if i do yeah. everything but that's how it feels so let, let's let's explore the first black hole let's explore the two to three hundred units what is the right sort of how, how do you see from your experience danny jordan you worked very close with a lot of clients. How do you see, what is the right moves you saw some of your clients made not actually let them go past this black hole quite quickly and painlessly? Danny? Well, uh, based on the work that we've done with the benchmarking study and our consulting, uh, consulting clients, uh, I would generally say that there's three major drivers. Uh, and, and again, I assume when we say black hole, we're talking about cash um or, or or growth penetration so um just just begin business beginning to starve and, st and stutter well, you know, yeah, a lot yeah. of times it's cash right at the end of the day that's probably yeah. that's that's you know if you give everybody a raise and you know, let them make make 150,000 a year you wouldn't have the problem but that's cash mm -hmm. yeah so i'll let jordan speak to the, the the growth side of the equation in terms of like you know penetrating and growth ceiling because maybe that's what some people are are, are thinking about um, but generally speaking, we see three things, uh, probably the number one driver of profitability. And, and, and by the way, cash and profitability are fairly closely correlated in property management because it's a recurring revenue model. Um, you know, it's, 
if, if, if you're not, if you don't, if you don't have cash, it's usually because you're just not profitable. It's not because of cash flow issues, typically. No cogs. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, uh, you, you know, there's not like a big accounts receivables and whatnot. So when it comes to that first stage, uh, generally speaking, there's three big things. There's your direct labor efficiency. Uh, that is very simply for every dollar that we spend on direct labor, how many dollars are we generating in revenue? If that's not in place, you're going to be hosed. Uh, it's going to it's going to be difficult to scale. And how are you uh, defining second, direct labor there, Denny? Direct labor would be basically everybody that spends fifty percent or more of their time delivering property management services to the owner or the tenant. Okay, so uh, generally speaking, you know, before that, that's kind of everybody in the company at two hundred units or less. You know, two to three hundred units is maybe a little bit of a gray area. And then usually four to 600, you have the owner and he's the only management labor with maybe a little HR or assistant work. Um, so very simply, again, direct labor efficiency is for every dollar we spend on direct labor salaries or 1099 commissions or whatever it is, how many dollars are we generating in top line revenue? Um, we, we're not going to go heavy into numbers, but we want to see that number three or above. Uh, where you're getting a 3x in revenue on your labor spent. Gotcha. Uh, secondly, would be your revenue per unit. And uh, this is this is huge. Um, the, there is so much focus on grow, 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 grow. Uh, but we don't talk as much about uh, is, is the revenue there? Is the, and, and to your point, Alex, is the top line revenue there on a per unit basis? And I think I think that's uh, maybe where our, our perspectives converge a little bit is to me, I'm all about top line revenue. And we've seen a huge correlation between top line revenue on a per unit basis and profitability. But, but making a point of not just growing revenue through more doors, but growing revenue, top line revenue through getting that revenue per unit up to where it needs to be, which it's hard to say, generally speaking, we've seen it's difficult for companies to make a profit if their revenue per unit is less than 150, 150 bucks, excluding maintenance uh, income. So um, again, I'm not going to get super into the metrics, but I would say a focus on revenue, particularly at a revenue per unit level would be the second big thing. And then thirdly would be uh, controlling costs in facilities and, and, and operating expenses categories. So those would be the three big things that I would say uh, you should really try to have in place uh, as you make that scale from I'm in the business to I'm the management or manager of the business, and that's going to smooth the transition out a lot. But th those sounds like th those sound like a very specific ratios and things to measure yourself against. But you have to take action to get to you know the outcome being meeting that 3.0 labor efficiency, uh, whatever, yeah. right? What are the actions, Jordan? Can you speak to some of the actions? What do you see people make? So now Danny sort of gave us the baseline and how to measure and benchmark how to measure ourselves against. I'm doing 250 units. What do I do as a business owner? Yeah, so this is, go ahead. I realize this isn't satisfying, but I really would say that your intention at the outside at the outset is so important and it cannot be understated. If your intention is not to be profitable, you're probably not going to be profitable. It's probably not going to happen. If it is your intention from day one, that is far more determinative than sitting here talking about feed maxing. So I, that's my initial caveat. The most important thing is your commitment to driving profit, which we think that every small business in this category should absolutely be doing. When you're actually trying to move those levers, if we wade into some of the specifics, 
you would say on the, uh, the labor side, for example, the labor side really just looks like asking yourself, how much time does it take to do this task? And do I have an understanding of what my people do? That first black hole that we talked about, you're so in the weeds, you're doing everything, you hire a couple of people, and the tasks were so right in front of your face that when you hire somebody, you're assuming that they're basically just more or less running the same playbook that you were running. But the further that you get away from it, the further you act in that management capacity, a lot of times there's not a lot of awareness and oversight as to how individual team members are actually spending their time. And I don't say that so as to, to catch people that are intentionally wasting time, but either that's confusion about the stated parameters of the job role, that's um, doing a lack of, of knowledge, driving some inefficiency into the organization. That could be that if there, if there isn't a lot of oversight, there is the opportunity for people just working at lower levels of efficiency simply because they can. So yeah. what I would say is being disconnected with the work actually being done and having an objective standard for how quickly the constituent pieces of the job should be done. Alex, because I have some context for your business, the equivalent would be, you have account managers and it's your business to understand how long it should take an account manager to do the constituent tasks. Otherwise, if we don't have that understanding, it's more or less like work hard, show up, serve the client. A lot of generalisms that are hard to actually hold somebody accountable to. Yeah, we have very precision. So, so now, now to, 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 to sort of apply, self-apply it and then, and then put it again back onto the property management entrepreneurs. Um, we have a very similar business structure as we deliver in service and we organized in the squads uh, structure, which is uh, something that uh, Ben White wrote about in his book and Adam Hooley sort of brought into the States through the PM Grow Summit presentation. And, and, we, and I really sort of, I really bought into that concept, right? And so the previous, the pre-black hole organization for me was pods, which is, you know, assistant account manager, account manager, and together they handle a number of accounts. This is for, very similar for property managers. Property manager, assistant property manager, together they work together, they handle accounts. Now we've rebuilt it into squads where there's a, um, uh, an executive, account executive on top, right? Account managers below, assistant account managers below them. And that, that basically what it does, it, it divides the labor between strategic and tactical, right? And applies the right resource into the right and I, so I, I, I firmly, the, the proof is out there, right? We don't know yet, but I firmly believe this is the model to achieve profitability and scalability for service business. I firmly believe that. I don't have the proof though. It's working great right now. We haven't done it for long enough to really have the comparison. It takes a while to migrate into that structure, but I think it's a, it's a worthwhile investment. And so what, what happens is the, the profitability um, is is very evasive on a service side because if you're staffing, people say staffing for growth, right? Mm-hmm. All the time. Staffing for growth. <laughs> All the time. is <laughs> our most important excuse, staffing for growth. Well, so yeah. you, you know Dennis and I work together, right? And, and you know, uh, Dennis does a lot of financial advising for us. And what we've done is we've built a unit economics model that actually, uh, uh, that actually has uh, uh, projections on full scale. So we run our unit economics. What does it cost us to acquire the customer? What's the profitability per customer? What's the revenue mm-hmm. per customer on average, right, throughout the business? And then we have the, the same model that's tweaked for fully scale. And so we see once we fully scale, we know, and now going back to the question, we know exactly, I'm sorry, that's taking a little bit longer, but 
we know exactly how long it takes to publish um, a blog from its inception, you know, to managing through the copywriter, a delivery process, through the approval process, all the way down to publishing, uh, approval by the client, sharing on social media, and so on. There's, there's, it's, a, it's a process. It's a machine. It takes a lot of work. You know, people think they're just things like that show up. No, they don't show up. Right? There's a lot of work to manage that process all the way through, but we know exactly the chunk of times it takes. And because the squad is divided, um, we now have access to lower price labor to take over lower steps. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Versus assistant account manager and account manager where you only have two high paid and low paid. Mm-hmm. What if somebody's sick or quits, right? Mm-hmm. So the concept of squad is where, you know, the, the account executive does the strategy. The account managers do, you know, less right in the middle strategy and, 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 and tactical. And then, then there's lower people who aspire to move within the squad. They have okay. opportunity and movement, um, but they do lower end work as they get to learn the business. And so applying that back to the black hole one for the property management business owners, I talk to a lot of people as well. And, and what I see is, I think that's, this is the time, this is the opportunity to build the first squad. So I don't know. I want to put it out on you guys now. Now you've seen this work. I don't know. Have you? Do you have customers who actually have fully adopted the concept, the squad model? Correct. Um, you know, I don't. I don't know. That's something we can really speak to definitively, one way or the other. The fact that you're talking about knowing what the constituent tasks require is simply a form of accountability. Another form of accountability is a is a salary cap. And our belief is that constraints are one of the single most helpful things possible in business, simply having a constraint as a forcing function. And really the salary cap is pretty much what we operate operate off of to course correct with labor. Danny, you want to talk a little bit about the salary cap concept? Yeah, I mean, basically a salary cap just provides visibility primarily to the management, to the owners. They basically say, where do I need to go? Where do, what, what do I need to do further investigation about where we're you know, having inefficiencies. And basically they might say, all right, well, we're, we can, we can identify that there's this kind of portion of, of revenue being driven by this set of people. Uh, Let's, let's compare the revenue they're driving to the labor costs and let's see what, what, what we see. Well, if if we see there's a lack of efficiency, then essentially Alex, we would do exactly what we talked about, what you talked about just a moment ago, which is breaking down the constituent tasks for that group of people. You're not going to beat them over the head with a salary cap saying, hey, I can only be affording to pay you so much money. It's probably not the best way, generally speaking, to manage the people. But you do give them a really clear understanding of the t- tasks they need to perform, probably like on a, on a two-week basis. Like here are the tasks that you absolutely have to execute every two weeks. We're going to have regular calls, regular accountability around specific sets of processes on how to execute these tasks. And we find that when you have the top level understanding of the numbers, it drives action on the part of the owner to clarify what needs to happen at the individual level and drives the regular routine accountability. So I think it's, it's a mix of understanding the big picture financial metrics and the, the more granular work that has to be done like you were describing, Alex. So, so let's talk about one specific example, Danny, without getting overly specific example of a client call we just had recently um client does sfh they also do hoa the hoa department drives a level of revenue that could afford about a half or uh, 
a half or or less of the of what they're currently paying the person that is running that department. So what do you do? One option is to grow. You need to either double or triple the number of HOAs that are being managed. Now that's great, but how actionable is that, Alex? I mean, when a business owner comes to you and says, oh, I wanna, I wanna triple my business in the next 12 months, I mean, what, what's your default kind of response to somebody ha- communicating um, that kind of expectation? What have you done before? Historically, let's take a look at what your business has, has accomplished. And usually that's an indication of what, you know, what future will hold. And how many businesses have tripled their in size over the last 12 months? Uh, the one that I spoke to in the last year. <laughs> so, so not a lot. So if you're, in that, no, not a lot. if you're in that situation where a business unit would need to triple in revenue in order to justify the existing labor, it's much more realistic that the, it's the labor that needs to be adjusted. And oftentimes that means um, moving around who's doing what that could be consolidating roles. Departmentalization conceptually is great, but if you're not at a place where you can budget wise afford that, then it, it may be something aspirational down the road, yeah. um, but it may not be practical today. I hope you're enjoying this podcast. I wanted to take just two minutes of your time and say thank you to our sponsor, a company who makes this podcast a reality. That's Four and a Half, my company. We do marketing for property management companies. We've done it for the last seven years, and the latest innovation we're introducing is guaranteed plans. That's right. We we're able to guarantee the performance of our marketing and website services to you if you hire four and a half to do both your marketing and the website. It all starts with a thorough business performance review where we really take a deep look into your business, SEO, uh, business practices, your uh, identify current up gaps and areas of opportunity, and then figure out how to close them for you. Then we're gonna guarantee a specific outcome in terms of results, and if that aligns with your goals, for the business, we can sign you up for this guarantee plan and deliver the results to you or work for free. If you have any, uh, if you would take take a further look at this, go to fourandhalf.com, hit pricing, and take a look at our guaranteed plans. Thank you. Let's get back to the show. One, uh, so I, I think I think we we got this down to two pretty pretty good takeaways. Um, you know, black hole one. You know, uh, buckle down, check your labor, um, you know, become sort of uh, um, more consistent with what you expect from people and be more managerial and begin to sort of establish those qualities and uh, don't even begin to listen to some of the experts who say that you need to be, well, I don't want to put anybody under the bus, but under the palm tree is not, you're not quite there yet. You're not going to be working from the palm tree or from the boat or what have you. I don't yeah. think that's that level yet. Unless, look, I, I actually have, we, we know people who ha, who are, are this two to 300 level and they're very, very comfortable. They've been at it for the last 16, 17, 19 years and they're just steady. But I think the way this industry grows, um, the attrition will, will eventually demolish them. It's a, it's a different playbook, Alex. Here's the thing. I just did an interview with a guy named Steve Crossland based out of Austin, Texas. He's known as the 100-unit guy. His constraint of choice is doors. He will not manage more than 100 doors. He will not spend more than half of his time managing the doors. And as a result, he picks the best doors possible. So his revenue per door is through the roof. He has no employees, and he's insanely profitable. 
You take another guy who's managing 100 doors. He didn't have that level of intentionality. He took any doors he can get, and that business could be a dumpster fire. So the game plan that you're running has a bunch of sub-decisions that go along with it. And if you want to be boutique, then go boutique, and that can absolutely be profitable. But don't say you're boutique and then uh, go to the PM Grow Summit and plan to triple your business within the next 12 months. Those things are incompatible. If your goal is to get to 25,000 doors, then by all means, you better start marketing pretty hard. And it's an entirely different playbook. You know, you got to know what's the right context for you. So before we go explore black hole number two, I want to throw this out there. Um, what? So so let me just let me set this up. Um, I've I've learned I've been a study of the the art and science of business has been has been incredibly exciting for me, and I have a business degree and all that. And I think I started my fascination with business reading Fortune magazine. I mean, I read cover to cover since I was 19 years old, like for years and years. And and what I found is, and what's been not been talked about a lot, and then was confirmed to me by someone else. One of the biggest differences, one of the TED Talks, I can't bring it up right now in my memory, but if I remember it, I'll link it in the show notes uh, in, in, the, in, the, in the article. One of the key differentiator for companies, successful versus not successful companies, is that culture and the mindset of experimentation. It's like never-ending uh, journey, right, and the culture of experimentation. And here, I'm going to drop this on you two guys to help you with this. You talking about very, very tight controls on your profit and having very, very tight and specific um, um, business um, that produces a specific bottom line number uh, to stay healthy and all that. Um, my sort of vision on this is a little bit different. Top line revenue gives you so much more margin dough to play with. Like literally you have, you can mold things in different ways, see the outcome remold it again and continuously move and experiment. And I think through that experimentation, the growth is uh, uh, the opportunity to grow and become and achieve your goals. And uh, that's provided your goal is to grow fast and big because I have no aspiration managing a small business. I love my small business owner clients. I've done this already. I have no aspiration to do that. I want to run a big business. That's my, that's, that's my goal, right? So if those of you want to run a big business, my, my thing is with high revenue and fast growth, you have an amazing amount of time to experiment. And what do you guys, how do you guys put that in the framework of driving profitability? So, I mean, you know, let, I might just be stupid, but I don't understand if we're talking strictly property management. I don't, I, it's not clear to me how high revenue for an unprofitable company creates cash. What we've seen is that people are actually in many cases bankrolling their businesses on real estate or maintenance and, or, or maintenance. And to me, uh, it, it, it creates, uh, it, it creates a delusion of success on property management. So generally speaking, I mean, if it, when you have a recurring revenue model, it's not like you're getting annual contracts. I mean, like for, for SaaS companies that have big enterprise contracts and they have to pay the piper, you know, 12 months from now. Sure, I can see what you're saying. Uh, it gives you cash to play with. For most property management companies, they get monthly paychecks and they payment, they get they get monthly income and they and they make their monthly paychecks. So to me, the model doesn't uh, give you cash to play with unless you do have some amount of profitability. I'm not disagreeing with your basic premise. I think cash does give flexibility. 
And what I think also gives flexibility is clarity of mind and focus. And I think what provides clarity of mind and focus and creativity is having a well-oiled machine that gives you some freedom from not having to be chasing your tail all the time. So I guess my spin on it would be that actually having some efficiency on the operational side of things gives you the profit, gives you the freedom of mind to be able to step away from the day-to-day and go have fun in the play box uh, in the sandbox with with some profits and and see what you can do. Yeah, my 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 my, my statement wasn't uh, intended to, uh, by any stretch of imagination, uh, uh, inspire business owners to be inefficient or ineffective sure. or disorganized in any way. And I, I know, Danny, you know that, but I want to clarify this for the audience: growth for the sake of growth is 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 ridiculous. Growth for the sake of purpose, um, and specifically with ability to help uh, fulfill your purpose, whatever that may be, beyond just money, but also have an ability, as you call play, right, to play. Because this is the, this is this is really really interesting. I mean, yeah, you you're playing with people's businesses and and whatnot, but a lot of times this experimentation amounts to some really really unique. Um, opportunities that you wouldn't get otherwise, and that's why mm-hmm. a lot of successful business businesses, and you know, would not be profitable for for a while. And I'm just connecting those, and maybe I'm I'm off base here, but in my experience, a lot of very very successful businesses were not driven by profit at all, like for at least first five years. Let me give you a case study. You guys all familiar with Appfolio? Sure. Okay. So Appfolio was never going to be small. Okay, I work there, and so it's a public company. It's public information, right? So what happened? They lost initially a raised like eighteen million dollars to just start the company, and then they raised another twenty, I believe. I can't remember exactly the rounds. It's all public record. And then, then they went what became public, and they were losing gushing cash, right? Losing a lot of money, uh, millions of dollars every year. And everybody looked at them and like, okay, well, you know, at some point. You know, what can you do? Like this company is just not, you know, it's not going to, uh, it's not going to survive with these kind of losses. I mean, there's only so much public money available out there. And all of a sudden in 2018, or it was it 17, one year, they just became immensely profitable. Like, just like that. You know what happened? They market size their, their market size, their fees. That's all. That's all they did. They went from buck a unit to buck 50 a unit. Nobody bad an eye because that's that you know it's that, that program is worth more than that, right? It brings a lot of efficiencies, and now all of a sudden this company that has grown by this leaps and bounds, um, you know, out innovated a lot of others who you know let's call property where and you know great company, but it was owned by by individual and profitability I think was important at the time they they weren't the ones with a lot of cash to burn, so they were writing a running a very tight ship. So there's, there's, there's an example, and then they got acquired, and now they're in a position to compete very effectively with, with likes of Apollo and whatnot. But there's an example. What, how, how do you distinguish the two? How do you break that down? Well, I think we're pretty quickly going into the other black hole. Let's go ahead and talk about that. Um, at a very high level, what I would say is that, A, most companies don't have access to that level of debt financing. B, that debt financing has to has to prove its worth, and the way that it proves its worth is ultimately in value in value creation of the underlying asset, the underlying valuation 
of the business. And this parlays pretty well to the conversation about the small subset of management companies that are really ambitious. They want to get mm -hmm. 10,000 units plus. Their implicit belief is that the valuation multiples, the math really changes once they're over two, 3,000 doors. True, not true. That's kind of a, a, an ongoing belief. And one of the ways that manifests itself is that when that organization expands, they take a land and expand model, start doing some acquisitions. Now they have a hub and spoke model. The math that's being done tends to discount the corporate overhead. And the thinking goes something like this. If I back out corporate overhead and my individual branch offices are profitable, then the business is okay. The, the overall business may be either at 0% profit or losing a little bit of money. Um, we have access to capital, we can keep growing, and eventually that corporate overhead as a fixed cost is going to be a smaller and smaller portion of the overall operating budget. That is what, that's the exposure that we've had within this in industry to thinking that is somewhat analogous. What I would say is that that may or may not be true, but it's a, it's a very different situation, and you're really, you're living on a knife's edge in that kind of a in that kind of an environment. So if that is your playbook, then it's just a it's completely different set of rules. It makes me uncomfortable to the extent that if you're wrong and if you scaled something that you are not able to turn profitable, you've basically spent the entire life cycle of the business not taking any owner distributions, uh, grinding and betting on this long-term proposition that you're going to get big enough to sell at a higher multiple, it just adds risk to the model. And most people don't have stomach for that. And most of these small businesses are not suited to follow that playbook. And, and, and furthermore, um, the question is how, in, how suited is the industry to follow that playbook? In other words, yeah. um, the reason that a lot of people are in this industry is because they can niche and they can carve out their own little piece of pie and there's not big, massive corporations that are, you know, price gouging them and, and cutting yet. them out uh, of the yet. Yeah. Uh, cutting them out of their little market because there is something uh, somewhat inherently decentralized about the industry. So um, that's not to say that that it couldn't be centralized with some, you know, substantial innovations, but we've seen attempts and some of those attempts haven't worked out. Right. So um, I would say that there's something within the industry itself that's a little bit of an, a constraint to the kind of scale that makes the proposition you're talking about uh, work. I'm not saying it couldn't happen, but let's be honest, it's probably not going to happen for most of the companies in the industry. Uh, there's going to be there's there's going to be a few big ones that might that might you know find the way to to achieve that kind of massive scale. Software is a different game. I, I agree. I, well, I was using that as an example, and it doesn't need to be right. We don't need to apply this sort of scale of going public to a you know John and and you know Susie competing down the road. Where I mean, you know, where John's business is more sort of revenue focused and growth focused, and Susie's more, let's say, profitably focused. And who's going to come out ahead? You know. Uh, you know, and, and sort of apply similar concepts, right, to Apollo and and what happened to them. But one uh, one one thing I wanted to mention is you said the industry is, may not be sort of positioned or ready for that. Well, um, I just sat down with the guys at Mind, Mind.com, M-Y-N-D, and I'll tell you, man, they they firmly believe that what they have going is definitely scalable, and 
the investors said, here's, here we go. Here's 20 million bucks uh, to prove us right. And, and so there's, there's a little bit of that. We know Castle has not worked out and they had a similar thing, but they did not have enough money um, where I think Mind is built by industry veterans where, where Castle is built by, you know, a guy with an idea, sure. you know, and a, yeah. and a techie, you know, techie pair of shoes. Um, so we'll see. <laughs> Uh, yeah. I, I, please don't hear me as saying that you couldn't scale the industry. And in, in fact, I think, I think you can. I, I just said that it's probably a little bit more resistant to it than other industries like scale. But let me, let me make this point. The way you scale something is by asking a question, which is, what is the opportunity here? And how could we do things differently? And what I would say is, based on the coaching that we have done, that's the number one question that a lot of owners are unwilling to ask. How can we do things differently? How can we, how can we break out of the mold? You know, we've had so many conversations. I can't charge leasing fees because nobody else charges leasing fees in, in, in my area. Well, we have a client in the same area who's charging leasing fees. You know, I can't, I can't, uh, I can't do maintenance markup because of, you know, such and such a reason. So what I would say is, this whole, to, to zoom out, to talk about scale, to talk about experimentation, growth, success, I think fundamentally it has a lot more to do with the attitude and disposition of the owner, which is to say, this is how it's been done. What are the new possibilities? How can we explore those possibilities? And if you have that mindset, uh, you may not scale to 25,000 doors, but I do believe that you're going to break out and run an amazingly profitable company because you're willing to ask questions and take action in ways that other people aren't willing to. There's a lot of constraint in this industry about the way it's always been done. And I think that presents a lot of opportunity. The other thing that I would say about this larger black hole or the go big or go home plan is that at the end of the day, the larger you scale, the more EBITDA comes to the front and center of the conversation. This whole idea of a top line revenue multiple and thinking that the, that the valuation mechanics won't change at scale, I don't think it's the case. I think the valuation mechanics do change. They get more serious. There's more scrutiny. And if your EBITDA is weak because your bottom line profit is weak, that's absolutely going to play in your overall valuation. So I'm sympathetic to the situation where somebody is growing like a bat out of hell because they're dedicating a huge portion of their operating budget to sales and marketing. And if you pull that back, they're tremendously profitable. I like that story. But any story other than that, where we pull back the profit and the operation is still leaking cash, I'm, I'm, I'm suspect of. So that's kind of the rough parameter that I would give. I, I like that concept. L let's finish on this, guys. Let's finish on this. I, I think the I think the business model and opportunity uh, uh, for the property management entrepreneur of nowadays is um, having your portfolio feeding the CBUs, you know, those uh, uh, connected business units, those individual business units that assist their companies that run. When you say, you know, hey, well, this business being bankrolled by real estate sales, not exactly saying that, but I'm saying, what I'm saying is a lot of smart, smart entrepreneurs that I talk to use the portfolio as a way to feed other CBUs that perform other functions that are complementary to, to, to the property management business. Namely, the biggest revenue items, what? It's real estate sales. Uh, they'll do maintenance. Uh, a lot of times have, uh, they have a lot very profitable construction companies. They'll um, uh, investor services. 
very, very profitable, sell and, and, and dispose of invest homes for investors. They run uh, clubs, real investment clubs. There's other things that the portfolio will feed. There's no reason why the portfolio should lose money. You're absolutely right. And it should have, it should grow. Cause if it doesn't grow, you don't feed CBUs, you know, you begin to sort of lose out. And now you have this huge cost structure with a lot of employees and not a lot, uh, um, not a lot of work to do. But to me, I think that is a smarter play right now than, than going gun ho after doors without consequence. Absolutely. It, it's, it's, it's revenue per unit. Basically it's a focus of how can I get my revenue per unit up through whatever means possible, whether it's ancillary fees within property management or maintenance uh, or other services, but yeah, uh, milking, milking every door for what it's worth within reason, obviously. Yeah, and give uh, them the value for it, right? You, exactly. Value. It's exactly. a value at CBUs. They're not, you know, they're not value sucking, you know, just. Wrong metaphor. You get the idea. <laughs> it, it's, the fee maximization max is not always the answer. Um, and in right. fact, it could put you on the sidewalk. Um, seeing that yeah. happen. Expanding the scope of services, expanding your value yeah. prop. Let's just call it that. Yeah. yeah. All right, guys, want to thank you very much. If people want to reach out to you and check into what you're doing, how would they reach you, Jordan? Is well, .com? Uh, you can email me at jordan at pmprofitcoach.com. You can check out so the podcast, Profitable Property Management Podcast. And uh, yeah, happy to have a chat. Great, guys. Thank you so much for your time. It was illuminating, and I appreciate it. I think our audience would like it. Uh, you guys have a wonderful day. See you next time. Thanks, Alex. All right. Talk soon.